when it, when it comes to literature, uh, particularly books we might find in the, uh, the Christian living section of a bookstore, not very many of those books will be just as relevant to our lives 96 years after they were written. Um, Christianity and Liberalism, which is a book by a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, This is a book that is just as important now as it was when it was originally published in 1923. And in this book, Machen combats liberal theology that has crept into the the once conservative Princeton Theological Seminary. And as one reviewer wrote, he does so with a surgeon-like precision. So the main thesis of his work is that liberal Christianity is diametrically opposed to true biblical Christianity, and he actually goes so far as to say it's actually a different religion. And so in this book, Christianity and Liberalism, Machen, who left Princeton and co-founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, He analyzes liberal views of various Christian doctrines, the doctrines of God and man, the Bible, Christ, salvation, and the church, and so forth. And in doing this, he really kind of pulls apart liberal thought, with, and he pulls it apart with scripture and with logic, while at the same time calling all men to be truly true in the faith, in the Savior, and, and to biblical faithfulness, calling us to faithfulness. Listen to a couple of quotes from this important book. Machen writes, the chief modern rival of Christianity is liberalism. An examination of the teachings of liberalism in comparison with those of Christianity will show that at every point the two movements are in opposite direction. The many varieties of modern liberal religion are rooted in naturalism, he says. That is in the denial of any entrance of the creative power of God as distinguished from the ordinary course of nature in connection with the origin of Christianity. It just sort of happened. It wasn't that God stepped into history. He says, here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood, while Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. It's no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity. The foundations are different, he says. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It's based on the Bible both in its thinking and in life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Now, remember, he's writing about liberal Christianity. So when he uses the word liberalism, he's not speaking of politics like we naturally think of in these days. And I don't know if you understood this, but he actually, he actually defined liberal Christianity really, really well. He said this, Here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. If you're an English teacher or even buff, you know what that means. 
If you're not, you're like me, and I have no idea what that means. So let me define imperative mood for you. The imperative mood is a verb form which makes a command or a request. So for example, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, listen for the commands. Romans 12, 1 and 2, listen for the commands. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And from there on, throughout the rest of the book of Romans, we read these kind of imperatives, these these commands. Just listen to the commands. Here's a list. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's, that's all one long list of things to do, commands to be obeyed. That was Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, by the way. I didn't skip around and compile a list. That's how it's written. That's how the scripture reads in that passage. But you should be sitting there this morning praising God that Romans has 11 chapters before those commands. You should be sitting there praising God that there are 11 chapters of God's grace and mercy before all of those imperatives. Machen said that liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood while Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. So, so now let me define for you the indicative mood. Just think indicates. The indicative mood is a verb form which makes a statement or asks a question. So the indicative mood it makes a statement of fact, but the imperative mood usher, or, or issues a command. So listen to the indicative from Romans chapter 1. I would, if we had time, I would read the first 11 chapters of Romans at this point, but we'll just read a little bit from chapter 1. This flows all the way through to chapter 11. Listen for the statement of fact, or, or let me put it this way. Listen to what Paul indicates when he indicates something that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have done. Romans chapter 1, just beginning in verse 1, he says this, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, 
set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all the saints, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Machen said, here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. Do this, do this, do this. While Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Christ did this. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in the indicative mood. That means it is finished. God sent his son, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there are many uh, imperative commands that we are called to obey in Scripture. However, it is of vital importance to understand that Christianity announces first a glorious act of God. He has done but God being rich in mercy. Then, as a result of the work done by God, we are then called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Then we are called to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Liberalism says do this, whereas Christianity starts with Christ died for us. Christianity starts with but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, I'm going to pound this just a little bit more. Because if we miss the meaning of this scene of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13, if we miss the meaning, the first meaning behind this, we're going to misapply the second meaning. So let's read this passage, John chapter 13. And I'm going to come back to this idea of of putting the indicative before the imperative. I didn't know you were going to have an English final today, but you will. John chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a master, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's just pray again right here. Father, I pray that we would understand, that we would see, be reminded of what Christ has done, what you have done through Christ, your Son. And then we might obey. Transform our hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Okay, so indicative before imperative. What God has done comes before what we must do. In fact, what we must do, our, as Paul calls it in Romans chapter 12, our spiritual service of worship is our response to the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the truth that for all who did receive him, who believed in his name, we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. Therefore, we must love one another. I'm going to stress this just a little bit more because this is where good churches start to drift into liberalism because they get it backwards sometimes. See if you can hear the indicative followed by the imperative so that something is indicated followed by a command in these passages. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's verses 8 and 9. What God has done. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And here's the command, that we should walk in them. How about 1 John chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18? The Apostle John writes this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Did you catch that? The indicative is this, he laid down his life for us. The imperative is, we also have to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 uh, through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. This truth, the truth of even 1 John 4, 7-12, this truth should have a profound influence on our attitude towards the church of Jesus Christ. That we love one another because He first loved us. This is why Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 4, as the mood shifts from what, what God has done in Christ to what we should then therefore do. In, in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, he writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And and Jesus demonstrates this in this passage when he washed the disciples' feet. And then he calls us to do as he has done. So the reminder for us is this. Jesus' washing of the feet of his disciples, of the twelve here, was in anticipation of his work of cleansing that will come on the cross when he will cleanse them and us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the prophet um, prophesies this, and he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus has now washed their feet and declared, You are clean, but not every one of you. He will remind them of this later in John 15, verse 3. After Judas leaves, Judas is the one that's not clean. After Judas leaves, he says this, John 15, 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So what was it that made them clean? Was it the foot washing? It can't be because Judas wasn't clean. No, he says that it was his word. It was his word that made them clean. It was the same thing that that cleansed Abraham from his unrighteousness. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. It, It was faith. The disciples heard Jesus and believed in him. And so as we pick up the story now in verse 12... Jesus resumes his place at the supper, and then he asks them this important, important question. Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? If you've been paying attention for these last 20 minutes or so, um, you could answer with the indicatives of Scripture, right? Jesus 
You have shown us that salvation requires us to be cleansed by your atoning blood, just as you have cleansed our dirty feet with water. There's a summary of what we could say. But we can't stop with a theological lesson. That is a lesson that he is telling them, and it is an important lesson, what he has done for them. You are clean, but we can't stop there. Um, If we do, if we stop there, we could be trapped in the same kind of problem that, that liberalism has. They're stuck in the imperatives with no indicatives. Right? They're stuck in the do this, do this, do this without understanding what Christ has done. If we, do, if we stop here, we will be stuck in the indicatives with no imperatives. We will be hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. We will have faith without works, which James says is dead, dead faith. And so he washed his disciples' feet and given them a command. The foot washing was intended to be an example for his disciples and all Christians of his self-sacrificing service done in love. Love, as verse 1 says, love to the end. We're called to imitate him in our lifestyle. And there are two ways in which this is an example for us. He tells us it's an example in verse 15. There are two ways in which this is an example. We are to follow his attitude and we are to follow his actions. So Jesus is an example in attitude here. He continues by teaching them right at the very beginning of verse 13. You you call me teacher. We'll just stop right there. You call me teacher. And his attitude throughout this scene, even just looking at verse uh, chapter 13, his attitude throughout all of this, it exemplifies for us what our attitude toward others should be. We are Christians. If you are a Christian today, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, this is how we should live. We should look at, at the attitude in this chapter. Just, just look back at the first verse, verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Look at his attitude there. Not only did he love his own and love them to the end, but he knew that his hour had come. He knew that his hour had come. So think about this. Jesus Jesus loved these men. These were his people. These were his friends. These were those who who had followed him for years. And we are told here that he knew two things. Of course, we know that he knew... All things, but he knows two specific things. He's facing the cross, and Judas is going to betray him. The opening of the chapter points this out. His hour has come, and one of them will betray. Later in the evening, Jesus will go off by himself to pray. But first, he demonstrates his own love for them by ministering to them. He attends to their needs, both their physical needs and their spiritual needs. And maybe we need to say, especially their spiritual needs. He knew their spiritual needs. He knew, for example, that they needed assurance. And so he says to them, you are clean. He assures Peter, you are clean. They would need to know this as they would see him arrested and tried and crucified in the next 24 hours or so. 
They would need to know this when probably the very next day they would take his body, his lifeless body, off the cross and put it in a borrowed tomb. They needed to know that they were clean. They needed to know that they were safe, that God viewed them as righteous. Remember, he has told them that they would understand these things afterward, he says. Um, Verse 7. He's told them that they will understand these things after these things. They're going to need to remember his assurance when they head out after Matthew chapter 28 in the, in the early uh, chapters of the book of Acts. They need to remember his assurance when they go out to fulfill the Great Commission. Peter and John specifically would need to remember his assurance of pardon when they would testify and preach the gospel before the Sanhedrin, the very same people who demanded his crucifixion. They need to remember his assurances. This is why for us as a church, um, I've tried to make it my habit to give you, it even says it in the bulletin, an apostolic greeting. It's just a greeting that the apostles, one of the apostles wrote a greeting um, in all of their letters. They wrote a greeting. This is why we begin each Lord's Day with that greeting. I'm not welcoming you into my big room here. This isn't mine. We are coming before the Lord together. And we need to be reminded of His grace and His mercy and His peace. That that is for us, given to us in Christ. We need to be assured of those things. We need to be assured of I said this earlier, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to know, you need to be assured, you need to be constant. We, we need to constantly be reminded that in Him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. We need to be assured of those things. But notice that the assurance that Jesus gives is is gospel assurance. He doesn't just tell them here it's going to be all it's all going to be okay. It's just going to all work out in the end. He assures them vividly with a physical parable as he washes their feet that they're clean. He assures them that they're clean, but because it's gospel assurance he he doesn't give it to just everyone. One of them is not truly clean. One of them has not truly believed. Gospel assurance tells us the truth. If we're to have the the attitude of Christ, our attitude toward life should reflect a a gospel assurance for each other to see, and it should be an assurance that speaks the truth in love. You are clean, but not every one of you. I don't want to give you a false assurance. I want to tell you, this is why preaching a funeral for unbelievers is so hard, especially here in the Bible Belt or on the edge of the Bible Belt or whatever we are. Because so many people think that they're okay. They're fine. They led a good life. He assures his disciples that they are clean, but not every one of them. 
Additionally, if we are to reflect Christ's example in his attitude, we will love the unworthy and the unlovely. Again, he loved his own even to the end. Now, these 12, nobody ever really describes them as lovely men. These are not lovely men. These are not even, especially in these first three years of their ministry, they're not lovable men. Um, Frankly, they're not worthy of his love. Instead, they were due his justice and his wrath. Uh, Let me give you one example. Take Matthew, for instance. Matthew writes himself, of himself, in Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13, says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and follow him. That's Matthew writing of himself. And as Jesus reclined at, uh, at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew tells that story of himself. (coughs) Excuse me. The Pharisees, the Pharisees there in Matthew 9, they saw Matthew as simply just another tax collector sinner. Someone who profited on those excessive taxes Rome burdened the people of Israel with. They saw him as a traitor, not worthy of sharing a meal with. Certainly not worthy of love. But Jesus showed them a still more excellent way, the way of love. This is the attitude of Christ's church that we must follow. This is the attitude that we must display and, and live out. An attitude of love that is based upon Christ's self, or his sacrificial love for us. Not simply because we think we're lovable. We're not. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were weak, that passage says. We were ungodly sinners. And Christ's attitude toward us is self-sacrificial love. And the third example um, of Christ's attitude that we should be Uh, able to follow here, we should be working on following here, um, is that he's not absorbed with his own troubles in this passage. He's not absorbed with his own troubles. Even as the cross looms on the horizon, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, even as he knows that his hour has come to depart from this world and go to the Father, Jesus is still meeting the needs of others. Their greatest need in this moment is to be purified by Christ. Their greatest need is to have a heart that has been washed free from sin. And so he purifies them individually, as he tells Simon Peter. And he purifies his church, 
As he, as he sends Judas the leaven of unrighteousness, as he sends him away. We'll see that as the story goes on. This is what Paul is saying for us in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And if you're familiar with Philippians chapter 2, you know what it says next. He considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but he laid it aside, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. To have the mind of Christ is to be focused on the needs of others because of what Christ has done. It's to follow the instruction of Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, when Paul tells the church at Galatia, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As Christians, we, we are to learn from our teacher. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to have his attitude toward the church, toward those whom he loved to the end, verse 1 says. And if we love the good shepherd, we are bound to love the sheep of his pasture. And, and just so we're clear, when I say that we are bound to love the sheep of his pasture, I don't mean that's just going to happen somehow. It's bound to happen. What I do mean is that we are tied to them. We are bound to love them. If we love the good shepherd, we are bound to love the sheep of his pasture. Remember, the church is, is Christ's own body and bride, obtained with his own blood. And so we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Look again at John 13, verses 13 to 15. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given uh, you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This rule of Christ should shape our attitudes as his followers, but it also provides for us an example in action. We're to follow not just Christ's attitude, but also his action. So this is an example in action. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. Not only does Jesus teach us with his attitude, but he also commands us, calls us to do what he says. Do you understand? I think you do. Do you understand that submission is the key to having a Lord? Do you understand that submission, being put under his authority, that's the key to having a Lord? Jesus cannot simply just be a teacher. He's also Lord. He can't simply just be a Savior. He's also Lord. But notice there at the end of verse 15 that he doesn't call his disciples to do what he has done, but rather he says for them to do as he has done. 
He's calling his disciples, us, he's calling us to embrace a lifestyle of humble, sacrificial, and even personal ministry or service. He's not calling the church to practice a a theatrical foot washing, but to live in such a way that gladly stoops to perform the tasks that show the world the love of Christ. That gladly does that. Notice in this, he, he also doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't say, hey guys, if I could have your attention, please. I'm going to wash your feet now, so if you could get in line. He just starts doing it. And you can read as this unfolds, it's almost like their conversation slows down and stops as they realize what he's doing. And they sit there watching in kind of awkward, uh, maybe silence, I don't know, until Peter finally says, what are you doing? You're washing my feet? He just does this. He wants us, he calls us to live in such a way that gladly stoops to perform tasks or service that show the world the love of Christ. This is where Jesus is directing us to do the work of one anothering in the church. Jesus, the teacher and Lord, on the way to the cross, stooped and washed his disciples' feet. What reason do we have for not stooping to serve one another? Is it sports? Is that the reason? Is it work? Is that the reason that causes us to stop or not stoop and serve one another? Is it our own exhaustion? Is it slothfulness? I'm not going to answer those questions because it's probably different for each of us. And it hits a little too close to home for me sometimes. Too often I can be proud and critical and eager to point out the failings of others, but instead I should be following Jesus' example and acting to serve one another, to strengthen one another's weaknesses, to comfort one another as we suffer to provide for one another's needs. Bruce uh, Milne, who is a retired Canadian pastor, he said this of this passage. He said, In a world desperately searching for the secret of community, this passage speaks most powerfully. It is those who have been humbled at the cross and come to Christ as helpless sinners seeking His cleansing who are the raw material of the community of humble servants. The cross is both the way of salvation and the key to true Christian community. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus is calling us to action here. But this is an action that flows out of the gospel. It flows out of the work he has done. The imperative, you must do this, flows out of the indicative because he first loved you and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His first priority is our spiritual needs. 
Jesus washing the feet of his disciples pointed to the blood of the lamb that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And when he declares, you are clean, he's not talking to their feet. He's talking to their souls. This is and must be our first priority as a church. As a pastor, preacher, I've been charged with the simple imperative But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's from Titus. Paul um, commands Titus that. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Similarly, Christ has gifted his church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our greatest need is Christ. Our first priority is to attend to the spiritual needs of the church. But we must not be, we must not be unmoved by the physical needs. We must not endure the suffering or poverty or injustice. That's why so many of us in here are involved in New Path, by the way. Because we cannot ignore the needs that we see around us. Our ministry, the ministry of this church, must be characterized by this kind of Christ-like, humble servanthood. All of our ministries, that's what verse 16 is getting at. None of us are exempt from this. And then as we conclude here today, um, Jesus circles back to this imperative, indicative uh, discussion in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Know, do. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What do you know? What do you know? Let me give you five things you must know, then we'll be done. These are going to be quick. Five things you must know. Jesus is Lord. Actually, we could say Jesus is teacher and Lord. Jesus served, number two. Jesus is teacher and Lord, and Jesus served. Number three, Christians are slaves of Christ. It's actually the words here. Christians are slaves of Christ. Number four, he calls us to serve. In fact, he saves us to serve. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jesus is Lord. Jesus served. Christians are slaves of Christ. He has called us to serve. And then number five, we are sent by him to serve in humility and love. We are sent by him to serve in humility and love. If you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word.
Let's pray. Our greatest need, God, is to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To know that by putting our trust and our faith in Him, by, by repenting of our sin and running to Christ, that He has saved us, called us clean, called us His own, that we are His workmanship, and that we have been created to obey Him. And so, Father, it is our prayer that we would know these things and that we would be blessed because we're doing them. We wouldn't get hung up on one or the other. Father, help us to be like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.